today. Welcome. Like Dan said before, if you are new, we're so glad you're here. We're actually in the book of Matthew. My name is Ryan. Um, this is Elliot, and we're not going to see Elliot and the whole band, really, next weekend. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but you've been kind of a guinea pig. The last few weeks, is it okay for me to tell him, Elliot, that we've been trying out some stuff? So Elliot is leading um, a huge uh, ski weekend with high school students. He's leading them in worship next weekend. And so they've been trying some new songs and preparing some new songs. So you guys have been guinea pigs, and, and uh, we just thank you for get, being guinea pigs. Um, but it's uh, next week, it's me uh, singing um, leading next week. We're going to, I'm going to do the whole thing, you know. Um, I'm kind of like Jimmy Fallon. I can sing and dance and do, no. Um, I will not be singing next week. It'll just be a, a silent hour next week. We're just going to have silence in worship. And, uh, but no, we're going to have a good time next weekend. Uh, but you can be praying for our high school students and a lot of our band who are going to be up at Powderburn. Um, I, I did want to just deal with like a little technical thing in the room. Obviously, we're a one-screen church right now, so you guys are like, I'm sick of looking left. Um, well, uh, just hang with us. We've got technical things, and, and as a church um, that sets up just on Sunday mornings, it's hard to solve all those each week, so we've got some things in the works. A um, couple things I wanted to share with you. This family shelter initiative thing that we're a part of is, is really a it's really an exciting thing to be a part of, and it's a whole church effort. We do have, like Dan said, three spots open for overnight hosts. Now, let me just tell you how overnight hosts works. It's super simple. Um, you, you, you take some things, um, and you spend the night. You go at 8 o'clock, and you can leave as early as 6 in the morning um, and um, to get to work and do your thing. So um, we actually have three spots still open uh, for that. Um, someone can hang out with me tonight. Um, I'm going to be doing the Sunday night shift. Ben Ewing is going to be doing the Monday night shift. He needs a partner. Um, and then Wednesday, right, Janelle either needs a partner or um, if there's two people that want to jump in on that, that night, um, we would love to have you. So um, I would love, we would love to solve that, fill those by the end um, of the, our time together. So be thinking about it. Um, but it, it's, 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 I can't... I don't, I don't want to say it's not important, but it, it, it is very easy. I mean, it's an easy job. So if you can make it work in your schedule, we'd love to have you a part of that. So uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Dan, last week, um, we had a crazy week last week. We had videos and um, technical problems and things running around. Dan's running around up here. We had a great time. Now, let me just tell you about last week how important that message was, not only because I know Dan, and I know how hard Dan worked on that message. There's so many pieces to that. We talked about the poor. We talked about this idea of being um, this style like we're in right now, lecture style, isn't really what Jesus meant by follow me. Uh, we talked about doing labs together and what it means to actually follow Jesus in our lives the other uh, 166 hours of the week. And so I just want you to know, if you missed last week's message, I would love for you to go online and catch that. Even if you were here, you probably missed some really great things um, just with how much we had to cover last week. And so Dan did a phenomenal job, and he just, he, he sweat blood and tears um, uh, preparing for that message. So I want you guys to check that out. But today, um, just a little recap. We're, we're in Matthew, and in the beginning of the series, we talked about Jesus um, and his announcement of the kingdom, okay? Now we're into this uh, whole new realm where he's actually teaching and showing people what it looks like to do this kingdom thing. Um, a few weeks ago, we read out of Matthew chapter 4, and it talked about Jesus going all throughout Galilee, and he went through Galilee, he went to uh, he teaching in synagogues, he's, he's telling people about this good news, this kingdom of God that is here. Um, he's healing sicknesses and diseases, um, and then and news spread about him, and then people started to follow him from all these different regions. And we talked about Galilee, we talked about the gospel triangle, you know, a little church world, um, a, a bunch of people were following him from there. Um, we talked about the Decapolis, which is this very Greek part of the world that was... Uh, um, 
kind of the, the Vegas of the, uh, of the time. Um, he, we talked about people from Judea following him. We talked about this region across the Jordan. And actually, the Greek word for that, that group of people across the Jordan is mishmash. <laughs> it actually means just like a whole bunch of people from nowhere, you know, following Jesus. And, and there's this huge group of people. And, and, and what we have now is Jesus, uh, Dan started it last week. Jesus is on a hillside with his disciples, and, and he's got all these people listening in on a conversation he's having with his disciples. And all these people from different backgrounds. He's got people who are sick. He's got people who are paralyzed. He's got non-Jewish people. He's got Jewish people. He's got men and women and a um, whole group of people there. And he's got religious people, very religious people. The kind of religious people that keep themselves at a distance from people who are sick and paralyzed and diseased and, and people who are possessed. And there's all those people sprinkled in the audience, in the crowd, all those people. But then the religious people are there too. And they're keeping a distance because they're taught to keep a distance. You see, the people who are sick and diseased and uh, paralyzed and all those things, they're, they're sick and diseased and paralyzed for a reason, according to religious people. See, according to religious people, if you are those, one of those things, something's wrong between you and God. Something's off, something's broken, something's busted. Either your dad or mom did it, or their dad or mom did it, or you did it. And so this sickness and the disease and being demon-possessed, it's a sign that you're not spiritually fit, right? And so here's this huge crowd, and there's religious people there, and they're trying to check out the situation with Jesus, and they're trying to keep themselves at an arm's length from all these other People, the people of the land, the Bible calls it the, the Ahamarets, these, the people of the land that are actually keeping the people of Israel back from a, really just feeling uh, God's full presence in the land. But God shows up, calls himself Jesus, and breaks all the rules. And so what we have today is a picture, a uh, Another part of the story, another part of the teaching. Jesus is completely holy, right? Top to bottom, but yet at the same time, he's standing shoulder to shoulder with people who are not. And he begins this teaching to his disciples. It says in Matthew chapter 5, let me just read this. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. It doesn't say he, he kind of got a huge crowd together and say, hey, everybody listen up. You know, he didn't do that. This was specifically for the disciples. People had been following him because he's healing people, but he gathers his disciples. Remember, we talked about he asked the disciples personally, hey, come follow me. And we talked about how upside down that was and how different that was to actually you pursuing a rabbi to follow. He actually pursued people to follow him, which is totally backwards. And so he's got this group of disciples and they're sitting on the side of a mountainside and he sits down to teach them. Just them. And everybody else begins to listen in. And it's really interesting. We, I think we talked about this before. There's two real groups here that Jesus is delineating. He's very, he's very clear on how different they are. The crowds and the disciples. The crowds is just anybody and everybody. Nameless people. Uh, the disease, the poor, the religious, whatever. And then he's got the disciples. We talked about what that word meant. And it actually, Jesus didn't make up discipleship. It was something that was already going on in Galilee in the Gospel Triangle. If you wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, there was a process to it. And, and, and this, this word actually means apprentice. Like, let me show you how it's done, and now you do it while I watch. And then one day, the goal was is that one day you would carry on your rabbi's work in the world, meaning you didn't need his uh, uh, training and mentor mentoring anymore. He trusted you with his teaching and that you were much like him to go into the world and carry on his work. That was the goal. 
That's how this worked. And so we talked about that kind of order of things. And so what we have here is Jesus teaching his disciple, disciples in earshot of the crowd can listen in. And archaeologists, archaeologists believe that there was a, a, a certain makeup of this hillside that allowed for uh, a, the regular spoken word to be heard based on the, the, the breakdown of the geography. And this is Jesus' manifesto he's beginning. And Dan began it last week. The Beatitudes is the beginning of this, this upside-down version of how to see the world. And this is his manifesto of what it means to live in community and on mission for the kingdom. And this manifesto, it's, it's this idea of how to live under the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, in such a way that it flourishes life for you and the people around you. And it, and it breaks down, it fixes the things that are broken. And so all around them are landowners, fishermen, crippled people, women, men, foreigners, healthy, sick, religious, pagan. And there's a standing invite. And although Jesus is talking to his disciples, there's this invitation to anybody to be a follower. To come under God's rule and reign to live in God's presence, and to be an apprentice of Jesus. And so somewhere along the way, we lose how shocking and subversive these words actually are. We think they're, they're neat, and uh, we get into some things down the road here where we'll get into uh, talking about not worrying. And we as Americans read that in a certain way. Oh, I shouldn't worry about my car payment or my, and we just, you just need to understand, it's much more subversive than that. It's much more life rattling than that. And we'll get into some of this, these things as we go, but as we started last week talking about this idea of a lecture versus a lab, they're standing on the side of a mountain and Jesus lays out these beatitudes, and it's basically the story of Abraham being told, retold to the people about how the climax of everything that Israel was supposed to be is now happening in me, Jesus says. I'm here to, to fulfill that. And so we're going to start actually in verse 17. We're going to skip a passage, come back to it, kind of like a Quentin Tarantino movie. You know, we're going to start at the end. Come back to the beginning, but we're going to start in verse 17, and it goes like this. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot of things going on here. There's some words we're going to look at. For the next five minutes, just dial in with me. Like, I hope to, to make some of this uh, you know, come alive for you. Uh, what Jesus is talking about here when he says, uh, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, he's actually beginning to set up the commands he's going to give. He's talking about the things that he's about to say. Okay. So uh, when, when it comes to the law and the prophets, Jesus is actually talking about what you and I know as the Old Testament. The law is the first five books, the books of Moses. Uh, they called those uh, the way, the Torah. Uh, this is, um, and don't confuse the law, meaning the, the individual laws that that we find in, you know, the light reading of Leviticus, but, um, but the whole thing, the first five books, okay, of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, even though 
that's not called the Old Testament in the Old Testament. It's called the Law and the Prophets, the Scriptures. So bear in mind that the Mosaic Code is different than, it's, it's, it's part of, but it's not the, you know, what Jesus is talking about there when we talk about law. So what we have is the, uh, this, the law and then the prophets. The prophets is basically Scripture's version of, or Jesus' version of saying anybody who wrote, wrote um, after Moses was considered prophetic. Whether they were historical things or whatever, that's, the law and the prophets encompasses the Old Testament. And so what we have here is uh, we, what we call the Old Testament, and a lot of us have a, a hard time in the Old Testament. We, we read things and we get frustrated, but we need to understand how Jesus read the Old Testament. And so I'm going to take a couple minutes and just understand, like, like unpack different ways that we read the Old Testament. Because chances are we don't read it completely right. And that will really help us going forward. The, one of the first ways we read the Old Testament, and it's not totally accurate. And, and some of you might go, well, you're, you're, you're stepping into some crazy territory, Ryan, because that's how I read it, and I'm going to disagree with you. But sometimes we read the Old Testament as timeless truths. And you may have heard this before where someone will say, all of Scripture is Timeless truths, and what it means is, is that uh, it's for all people, at all places, and at all times. Have you ever heard that before? This idea that everything in Scripture is exactly how it should be for us today. And it's, that's actually a very dangerous way to read the Old Testament. Um, there's lenses that you and I read, and, and sometimes we ignore the context for something in the Old Testament, something in the law, and, and it con confuses us a bit. I mean, there are confusing verses in the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, um, these verses are not written in a vacuum. Exodus chapter 34, verse 26 starts with this. Bing, bring, the, bing, bring the best of the first fruits of the, your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Okay, stop there. That sounds like something we would normally hear, first fruits and harvest and agriculture and things like that. But then you get the curveball. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And I don't know if you guys, I mean, you guys look like people that we need to talk about um, cooking young goats in its mother's milk. You know, some of you guys really struggle with that. And so that's why we're here today, to help you. Um, really, this is, uh, we're like, what? Um, this can't really mean, I mean, this just means today, this just means you're not vegan, right? That's all it means. Um, but in context, okay, in context, there's actually an ancient Egyptian ritual, worship ritual, that actually it's a cultic thing that, if you did this, you were aligning yourself and your family with this certain practice of worship. And remember, they spent 400 years in exile, right? And so you're going to begin to adopt some practices from the people that you hang out with in exile. And basically, Moses, God through Moses is saying, I want you to be a separate people. I want you to be a pulled apart people. So don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk, right? Now, you'll meet people that are angry with the Bible and angry and don't believe in God, and they'll say, oh, that looks like it's really important to, you know, you should really fulfill that one today. You know, there's context. And so when we talk about timeless truths, yes, there are timeless truths in Scripture, but understand that, you know, there's no sacrificing in the temple anymore. In fact, Hebrews tells us that, hey, if you continue to go back and try to sacrifice in the temple, you're actually undercutting what Jesus has done. So this isn't the only, this isn't like, be careful about reading all of scripture that way. And then there's another way of reading it. And, and, and this is called allegory. Okay. And it basically, you read the first part of the Bible as pictures and shadows and signs, um, and, and, and like signposts pointing to Jesus. And, and this is partly true. I mean, we have the Passover lamb and we, we look at that idea as like a picture and a signpost pointing to Jesus. And, but you can take it too far. Take Song of Songs, for an instance. The book, Song of Songs, we went through it um, about a year and a half, maybe two, 
somewhere back in the future. Um, Song of Songs, and we talked about this. We talked about how some people interpret the Song of Songs as an allegory. I remember hearing a preacher talk about Song of Songs and how this was about Jesus' love for us. And you just can, when you read it, like seriously, when you read it, you're like, that's, ooh, right? That's just not what I'm picturing. Like, like it, it's actually a beautiful picture of what marriage looks like and what the marriage bed should be like. And it's just, it's full of, full of spice. It's <laughs> Valentine's reading, folks, you know? And so, and so I actually heard a preacher, there's a, there's a verse that talks about, uh, her, your breasts are like what you know. You guys remember that one, right? Right. Look it up. Google it. And 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 he's like he's like, what this means is the right breast is the Old Testament and the left breast is the New Testament. And no, it's not. Not it's not. And so what happens is when you read the Old Testament that way, or when you read Scripture that way, you end up compartmentalizing Scripture. You, you compartmentalizing to just your spiritual life. That it really doesn't have anything to do with speaking into our sexuality and our money and our time and our relationships and how we work and how we live. And that's a tragedy. Another way sometimes we read the Old Testament is to fear it, to, to avoid it, that, that God was angry then. And now he's happy. So we're just going to hang out. We're going to camp in the New Testament. We're going we're to let the Old Testament kind of go. Um, we're going to just, you know, lean on this idea that, you know, it's, you can't earn your salvation. So the laws, you know, nothing to do with us anymore. And, you know, people started to go that way pretty early on in early church history. There's a guy named Marcion that actually decided that the Old Testament was no good. I'm just paraphrasing here, so um, that, that it was an angry, wrathful God, and in order to resolve, okay, his kind of theological dilemma, Marcion was, he actually created his own version of scripture, and he cut out the Old Testament, which is a pretty good chunk, and then um, he actually kept uh, you know, some of the, well, really one gospel writer, Luke, and some of Paul's writings, that's it, and he actually changed uh, this uh, this idea that we're about to fulfill and abolish, he actually changed that Jesus came to abolish the Old Testament, to destroy it, to get rid of it. So it was like a, a heretical cult thing going on there. The problem with that is that Jesus loves, quotes, and memorizes the Torah. In fact, do you know what his favorite book was to quote? Deuteronomy. There's Deuteronomy all throughout the words of Jesus, the phrases of Jesus. He points back to Deuteronomy. What's Deuteronomy? It's Moses' reminder to the people of Israel of who they're supposed to be. And so if you cut all that out, you're missing really what it means to follow your rabbi. The fourth way we read the Old Testament, don't worry, there's only five, so we're almost done. The fourth way we read the Old Testament is to totally go towards the Old Testament and just be like, man, this New Testament thing's too lax, there's too much grace. We need to get back to the nitty-gritty of following the law, right? We need to get more serious and more dedicated and blah, blah, blah. And you met those people that are like, I'm going to see what it's like to follow the whole rabbinic, the the Jewish law. And there's there's people on YouTube that think it's pretty, pretty cool to do that problem is you can't do it. You cannot do it. There's no temple anymore. So that cuts out like a pretty good chunk, (laughs) right? And there's just so many things. I mean, are you going to stone people now? I mean, there's just so much that, I mean, there's so much confusion too. I think people are saying, well, well, what's good and what's not? We can't get into all that today, but here's the thing. The story of God at work in the world is really what Jesus is pointing to. How Jesus reads the scriptures and understands the scriptures is that there's a story that begins early in Genesis with with how it was supposed to be in shalom, and then there was broken shalom, there's broken uh, uh, peace that God had with his people, and then there's this ongoing drumbeat and pursuit of his people through Abraham, through being a people of Israel, 
through God wanting to be their king. And there's just so many themes through the Old Testament. And so Jesus is bringing this to the people saying, this is a rich story of God at work in the world. Do you know that majority of the Old Testament is story? Do you know that there's, uh, I looked this up, 70 chapters of story before there's one law. 70 chapters of story of God's pursuit of his people before there's one law. And so when Jesus shows up and he says, I haven't come to abolish this. I haven't come to destroy this. I've actually come to fulfill this. He's not saying this is a bad thing. Uh, You know, uh, I'm doing something brand new. You can chuck it. He's saying, no, I've come to fulfill it. And this word fulfill, it means to complete it or bring it to an end, right? This idea that, um, to complete something, to fill it, to bring it to completion is what Jesus is there for. And it's actually in him and through him that that happens. And so for Jesus, these were, the law and the prophets was never a static thing. It was a very fluid thing. It's this, this idea of it's pushing and pointing to a climax. The day of the Lord where the creator God will come back into human history and set up his rule and his reign. And he stands on a hillside outside of Galilee and says, I'm here to be the climax of all of that. That all finishes and completes in me. I mean, think about how insane that was. The religious people from that moment on just started going berserk. And he says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. In verse 18, this is where it kind of gets going. It says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So that there's this idea until everything comes true, okay, we're going to work. Until everything comes true, this entire thing is pointing to me. Then verse 19, I love this. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, because remember, he is about to unpack everything in the law. He's about to, to do his rabbinic teaching, his yoke we talked about. He's about to do that. If anybody sets aside any of these, they'll be called least. But listen to this. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say whoever memorizes these and knows these. That's not what he says. He says whoever practices these and teaches these. So we we all have a role in practicing and teaching. Parents, you teach your children. We teach each other. We practice together. That's what we do. And he says, if if you practice and teach these commands, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so what happens is, is we've got this idea that Jesus is standing up on the hillside. I'm not teaching you anything new. But there's something happening here. There's something happening and being fulfilled in me and the climax is coming and you're a part of that. And so we're going to go back now to to verse 13 because I think this gives us an essence of what this looks like. And this is uh, two metaphors that Jesus uses to talk about. And remember, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the 12 that he handpicked. And he goes like this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the, salt, if, if, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay? Jesus didn't say, be the light of the world, 
so that um, American presidents could t tell everybody that we're the light of the world. Okay, let's just get some context. That's not what Jesus said that for, okay? So let's, talk, let's start with salt. Salt and light are the two metaphors that Jesus talks about. Salt has, I mean, this is simple stuff, and obviously we've walked through this before, but I think there's some, there's some outcomes for us that are important. Salt is good for what? Flavor, right? Flavor and taste, right? Who likes salt? Anybody? Yeah? No, but, but no one eats like a whole bowl of salt, right? Because that's like a junior high trip thing, right? I dare you to eat that whole bowl of salt. Okay. And then they got to go talk to the nurse. But they, 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 there's like a flavor and taste part of salt, brings out the flavor in food, right? Then, in, obviously, in, a, um, in the time that Jesus is talking, there's an idea of preservative value of salt, that it gives food the ability to decay at a lower rate. Um, so that's pretty important, wouldn't you think? And then my favorite, really, this idea that it makes people thirsty. I really don't think necessarily that Jesus was getting at this, but I think this is, this is like Ryan's interpretation of what Jesus was saying, that he's saying, you have an opportunity to make people thirsty. You actually um, have a way about you that makes people want something else. And, and so we've got flavor, we've got the taste of Jesus, uh, wherever you go, we have this idea that your presence and my presence in the world should be seen as a way of keeping the world from going bad, keeping away of your family from going bad, keeping away uh, of situations and relationships from going south. So a lot of times uh, what, how this has been interpreted some, is that um, as Christians, it's kind of a top-down thing, that, that we need to create structures in society that, that, um, that keep, um, that, uh, that make this happen. Um, or or as, as Christians, that we should withdraw from society a little bit, uh, from the outside in, you know, top down and then outside in going, okay, we're going to stay separate from the world, uh, but we're going we're gonna to shoot influence in. You know, we're going to like stay separate and jump in like that. And really what Jesus is saying, no, it's an inside out thing. It's an inside out thing. Like you can't affect something that you're not in a part of. Paul talked about being of the world, uh, being in the world, but not of it. And there's a, there's a component to salt that's a spread out thing, right? Like I said, you don't eat a whole bowl of salt, you spread it out. And there's a sense in which we're spread out people, that we're, we're supposed to live spread out. And then Jesus says there's this warning, don't lose your influence. Don't lose your saltiness. And then he talks about light. And in the context of Jesus' day, light was not like the easiest thing to come by. When you were done work, you were done working when it got dark. You started working when it got light. That's how you planned your day. In fact, you were probably asleep pretty soon after it got dark because you were working all day, hard. And so if you were traveling at night, Chances are the only light you would see would be a cluster of lights together. Lights, lamps, things that were in, uh, you know, clustered together. So if you've ever been in the desert at, at night, and maybe it's overcast, it could be the most pitch black experience of your life. People believe that, that some of the lights on some of the hills in um, the Galilee area were actually um, just a cluster of 15, 20 lights from homes that you could see from 50 miles away in the right conditions. So this idea of light, light actually did a lot of things. If you were in the middle of nowhere and you saw light, it gave you direction, communicated safety, it communicated there was something near it actually gave you a sense of uh, security and safety as you traveled. Um, and in, in, the, in the darkness, light leads you, right? It guides you. It, it pulls you into a group of people. You are safer within a group of people than you were out in the wilderness on your own. 
And so when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, what he's also referencing is Isaiah chapter 42. Take a look at this on the screen. Isaiah chapter 42 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. Listen to this. And a light for who? The Gentiles. The people of Israel were actually supposed to be a blessing to all nations that actually through their sacrificial love and their service and their openness and their they were supposed to portray who God was to the people all around them. That was their job. And so what Jesus is communicating here is you are a light. That your light should shine, your light should beckon, your light should welcome, your light should point to him. And so you have salt and light, really two opposite metaphors. One is salt scattered, right? You don't want too much of that in one place. It gets kind of gets salty. Light gathered together. So this idea of gathered together, scattered. And there's this tension we live in all the time. Um, one of the reasons why we uh, gather is because, uh, well, in America, we have buildings and we have uh, computers that check in our kids and we have some crappy coffee in the lobby, and we have, we have things that we do to gather. We have a great band, and we're pretty good at gathering in American churches. We're really good at it. In fact, there are conferences about how to gather more people. Um, there's, there's tricks and things that you use to get more people to gather, and um, there's a lot of that happening. But what we've decided from the beginning is we're a, we try our best to not just be a come to us church, but a go to them church. And, and there's a huge difference. Um, study in church theory, and I'll just share with you a little bit, is just this idea of being an attractional church, meaning that um, the pastor and the band and the building and the presentation and everything can be made um, to, to bring more people, to gather more people, okay, on a Sunday, on a weekend. And, um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, um, but that's not our only goal. And, and Jesus says we're gathered and scattered. We're both. Together we are, can be a light to the world and yet we need, to, we need to spread out. And so the goal in an attractional model church is this, to attract as many people as possible, okay, to do what we're doing on a Sunday morning, to do that here. And, and your job as people who aren't up here, okay, is to, uh, you know, serve in children, smile, you know, do that, that kind of thing. And that's not, like I said, it's not all bad. Um, and lots of you are here because that, that actually worked. It did. And um, so I'm not bagging on it. I'm just saying, but, but if only, okay, but if it's, only, if it's the only way you do church, if it's the only way that you and I do church is the gather, um, that, that's at best is only half of the story. At best. And I would say it's way less than half of the story. See, in post-Christian America we live in, and, and it's funny, like, I remember sitting with people and they're like, uh, you know, we need a revival in Denver. I'm like, I don't remember Denver ever being, like, a Christian city. Like, maybe we need a revival, but, um, you know, it's like this idea that, <laughs> that at some point this was a Christian city. It's not. And actually, I think, I actually understand, you need to understand when I say, it. I think at the the more the church is kind of on the margins of things, I think the more powerful the church's influence is. I'm just saying that. I'm just throwing it out there. So more and more people, okay, will never step foot into a church. That's just the reality right now. And um, it, I don't know if you knew this stat. I think I've shared it before. 90, 96% of church growth in Denver is people going from one church to another one. 96%. So 
And I'm really super glad you're here, if you're new especially, but you're probably coming from somewhere else. And, and so that's, but I mean, you, you need to understand the reality we live in. And so when I talk about a come to us version of church and a go to them version of church, let me talk about what that looks like. It's this idea of being salt. This idea of that if you follow Jesus, it will lead you to a missional life, it, a really a tangible missional life. This idea of taking on, Jesus takes on flesh and blood, and we get the word incarnation from that. He incarnates himself into our world to live shoulder to shoulder with people. It's not a dude on a stage, or in where a stage could be, I guess. Um, but it's a guy or gal right in my life. Right? I mean, the goal of this approach is to get as many of you outside the walls of this rented facility and as many people as possible to experience what Jesus looks like. Your job is to go and be like Jesus and carry on his work in the world to make people thirsty. That's your job. That's my job. Now, you, you could, let me just say this. What I do right now, what I'm, I'm preaching right now, this is easy. And you might go, that looks hard. I would never do what you're doing. Guys, let me just tell you how easy this is. You know what's hard? I'm talking about Jesus with my neighbor. You know what's hard? Selling something that I own because somebody else is in need. You know what's hard? I mean, those things are hard. This, this part's easy for me. I mean, this, this preaching part, I mean, this is, this is easy. You may, well, I work really hard at it, but I'm not saying like I just got up this morning and was like, well, it, it's hard work, but this isn't, this isn't, the, what, what Jesus is talking about as far as follow me. What would it look like for us to be salt and light? Let me give you an illustration. Difference between a movie theater and something else. Okay, movie theater, you want to go see a movie. You go to the movie theater. You're there to see the movie, right? You're there to experience the movie. And some of you, I know how you work. You try to get out of there before everybody else. And so you, I know some of you do this. You're like, the movie, you can tell the movie's almost over and you, you go stand near the kind of the door and you watch and then it's done and then you bolt out and you beat everybody in the parking lot because um, you're friendly like that. Um, but you, you, never at a movie do you get up and the lights come up after the movie and you're, you talk to someone you don't know. And you say, man, what'd you think? How'd you like it? You know, you talk about it on your way home with people, but you're never really getting to know people. Tell me your story. What brought you to the movie today? <laughs> you know? How you doing with some of the material in the movie kind of rattling around in your life? You want to talk about that? You don't do that, right? You're at a movie, right? You're consuming a movie, and you get in the car with your wife or your, your friends or whatever, and you're like, what would you think? Well, I liked this part, but I didn't like that part. And a lot of times we, can, we, we confuse the gathering of light, okay, with going to a movie. See, I think this whole thing needs to be much more like Home Depot. And, and this, this breaks down at some point, so... Don't, yeah. So, anybody know, uh, and you're looking at a guy who used to work for Home Depot, so anybody know the motto of Home Depot? Anybody? You can do it, we can help. You can do it, we can help. I mean, it's pretty much what Jesus is saying, right? This idea of like, you can do this. Let me show you. So you want to tile your bathroom. You go to Home Depot. There's this huge tile. You know, there's tools everywhere. There's tile. You don't know where to start. You meet the tile expert guy. Maybe. <laughs> right? Maybe. Hopefully. This is where it breaks down. Okay? So you meet the tile expert. Tile expert guy goes, hey, listen, I'm doing a class next Saturday morning. You come. I'm going to show you how to tile. 
And I'm telling you this because I did this. It was the crappiest tile job I've ever, I mean, I've gotten better since then. But I gave it a shot. And, the, and I go back and I'm like, hey, I started. He's like, is it, is it still wet? Because you need to go back home. You know, like there's these conversations we're having, right? And so the tile guy walked me through. I don't know the guy's name, but he, you can do it. We can help. We're called to be salt. We gather, but hey, don't get so revved up about this. This is so that we can go do that. You can do it. We can help. Here's the deal. Restoration Covenant Church, aisle nine of Home Depot. There are people here that can tell you and show you and walk with you how to get through grief and pain. Why? Because they're kind of experts in it. Aisle three, there's people here that know what it's like to struggle in your marriage. They want to walk with you. Some of you want to learn what it's like to trust God in every area of your life. And there are people that have done that and, and done that in those areas of your life that are just so hard to trust God in. You can do it. We can help. That's what this is about. See, the problem for me, and you're like, well, okay, you don't have problems. You, you just said your job's easy. Problem for me is I live in this Christian bubble, Okay? Most of my conversations with other morons like me who do this. Or, <laughs> like Dan, all right? So my, my conversations are with people who are in the biz, so to speak, right? Or with you, you know, you guys. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I love talking to you guys. And we sit down to have coffee and we talk through things. And, and, I, and I con you into serving somewhere or whatever it is, right? right? So there's, but, but most of my conversations are with Salt people. So there's just been a huge yearning in me to get out of that, okay? I'm not quitting, but there's other parts of my life that I need to give to the community. And so I've started something new. I'm not going to get into exactly what it is, but I'm, I'm digging into some areas in this city right now that are actually causing me to take some of my time, Okay? some serious courage and faith to do some things that are way out of my comfort zone. And there's an emotional weight to it. There is, um, there's people I'm running with and circles I'm running with and, and situations that I'm involved in that are very uncomfortable for me. Because I've chosen, I've decided I need to be more scattered. And maybe you do need, need that as well. On March 5th, and we're wrapping up here, on March 5th, Sunday afternoon, this is a Sunday, um, there's no football, just FYI, um, there's, you know, there's, there's nothing else happening. We're going to do something with a collection of other churches in Arvada, um, and we have a slide for that, I forget what it's called, The Art of Engaging, and this is, there's about eight churches coming together, and it's here, we get to host it. We're going to leave everything set up. We're going to have both screens working. It's going to be awesome. And there's, there's a guy coming in to show us, to give us a little bit of insight on how to engage people, how to make people, how to, how to create spiritual curiosity in the people in your lives. And I just want to invite you to that. We're going to have child care for that. It's about 3.30 in the afternoon until about 5, um, so you can get back home, do some dinner, whatever. Um, but I would encourage you to be here for this. We're going to pack this room out with people from all over uh, Arvada who want to make people curious, want to make people thirsty, okay? So if you're a little concerned about how you want to do that, um, come to this. So let me, let me finish off with this, First Peter. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Now, let me just stop there. This isn't a derogatory term. He's not saying those pagans. Those are just, that's just simply a word that says people who don't follow Jesus. 
Live such good, such good lives among the pagans that though they, may, they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. This idea that your life, that though they want to see something fall apart, live such good lives that it makes people thirsty, that it makes people not want to go to church because that's, remember, that's not our goal. It's not come to us, it's go to them. And that's what we want to be. And so all, all of that happens outside of these rented walls. All of it. And the point of Israel was not Israel. The point of restoration is not Sunday morning. It's not restoration. The point is your life meeting with God's mission and as a church, we collectively be a part of what that looks like. That's the goal. And we're conduits of what God acts and God's doing to carry out his acts in the world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are coming to the table as a community, a community gathered. A community gathered wondering what it looks like to be scattered. We're not here just to gather. And God, it says that Jesus broke the bread and he uh, says, whenever you gather, do this. So this morning, God, we come to the table as people who are learning to practice. Give us insight. Give us conviction. Give us help. We pray these things in